personality is a meaningful concept. It's just, it's not fixed. It's not concrete. So what excited me was discovering that there is this malleability and what if we seized some control over it? What if we were more intentional about it? I'm Rufus Griscom and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can you choose to change your personality? Yeah, I had a lot of fun in college, probably a little too much fun. You know, a lot of the best stories from those years are different, of course, but an unfortunate number of them end the same way with me spending the night in jail. Um, (laughs) I've been in a Mexican jail. You know, I've also been in the jail in Vail, Colorado. Uh, Knowing you, Rufus, I think I would recommend Vail, Colorado. (laughs) That's my friend, Mark Harris. For years, I've been hearing stories about his raucous college days, stories that don't mesh with the guy I've come to know today. Disciplined worker, great dad, fastidious, cuts a perfect crescent moon of orange rind when he makes you an old fashioned, drinks one, sometimes two, three on a special occasion. He's a highly competent grown up in a world frustratingly short on competence. That's the mark I've come to know. But I've always wanted to meet the young Mark, the rabble rouser, the jail cell connoisseur. So I invited him over, poured us a couple of drinks, and asked him about it. I wasn't really such a wild person in high school, but I had fallen in with a wilder group in my last couple of years of high school. It was sort of like I was practicing uh, for these college years. <laughs> when he showed up at the University of Texas at Austin in the fall of 1987, he was ready. And I felt it was my job, Rufus, to set a good example. And by that, he doesn't mean going to bed early. The goal at that time was not being studious or responsible. It was it was having fun and being fun loving. And as you like to say, Rufus, live a good story. And that's really what those four years were about. I just happened to find that most of those most of the really good stories took place after midnight with the assistance of an abundance of alcohol. Before long, partying wasn't just an extracurricular activity for Mark. It was his job. He joined a fraternity, was elected national rush captain, took control of a $60,000 recruiting budget, and spent the summer traveling the country, entertaining recent high school grads. His mission was to make those nights as memorable as possible. Hopefully, in the morning, when the hangovers cleared and someone posted bail, his fraternity would have signed up a few new pledges. It was hard work. I was a wreck at the end of the summer. I mean, I could drink a case of beer without really even feeling the effects of it. My car had been destroyed. I put on probably 40, 45 pounds. I think I weighed 215 pounds at the end of the summer. My apartment had been turned upside down. It was uh, a full-time endeavor. And he loved it. Yes, his behavior was often embarrassing, sometimes cringeworthy, and occasionally technically criminal. But Mark took pleasure in the fact that he was living wholly, blissfully, drunkenly in the moment. I did a really good job in those days of really tuning in to uh, other people and, you know, I- engaging in the, in the human ex- experience. He also periodically tuned into his professor's lectures. Mark approached studying the same way he approached partying. He stayed up all night cramming and relied on adrenaline to carry him through. Somehow, 
it worked. He managed to keep his grades on par with his sober-minded peers, which gave Mark an idea. He knew that one day he was going to have to graduate and get a real job, one that could pay for the repairs to his car. So he applied to law school. Yeah, this was not the natural trajectory of my personal narrative, I'd say. And um, most people were just, it, it was somewhere between, you know, being totally incredulous and utter disbelief, if those are even different points on a spectrum. But to the admissions office at the University of Texas School of Law, Mark seemed like a promising young man, so they let him in, a decision that quickly proved to be a mistake. I got my midterm exam results back, and I did horribly. You know, I remember I was in the bottom quarter of the class, and it was ugly. He went home for the holidays, deeply discouraged, and shared the news with his parents. You know, their message to me was kind of like, hey, listen, you know, maybe this is the best you can do or this isn't for you necessarily. You know, you're not going to be a great law student and that's okay. You can, doesn't mean you can't be successful. Doesn't mean you can't be happy. And I just was like, what is going on here? I mean, here are these people who had basically held the bar high for me my whole life and believed in me my whole life and encouraged me. And now I'm hearing from them that, you know, maybe I'm just not up to the challenge. (laughs) And I thought, I really have to get this together. He went back to school, befriended the smartest kid in the class and pitched him on a way they could work together to design a study system that would allow them to consolidate, consume and retain the overwhelming amount of information their professors were hurling at them. For the system to work, it required a degree of discipline that was totally at odds with the see where the night takes you mentality that had guided Mark's life up to that point. I actually went as far to laminate a sort of hour by hour calendar for myself that told me exactly where to be and what to do every single hour of the day. And we just, you know, lived that laminated calendar slavishly. And it worked. By the time their final exams rolled around, Mark managed to pull himself from the bottom quartile of the class to the top 10%. For the first time in his life, he realized that intensity and discipline and rigor and sacrifice get results. He kept up his strict study habits, graduated with mostly A's, went to clerk on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, worked on Wall Street at a big white shoe law firm, and then co-founded a company that promised rather audaciously to reinvent the half a trillion dollar legal industry. He cut frivolity out of his life. Every day was a laminated calendar kind of day. You know, and then I stayed in that mode for two decades and I was rewarded for it. The company he started, Axiom, grew to employ thousands of teammates and serve over half the Fortune 100 across the US, Europe, and Asia. By 2019, Axiom was generating almost 400 million in annual sales, at which point Mark sold it. It's kind of a classic success story, right? Guy goes from cut up to CEO. He trades spontaneity for work ethic and reaps the rewards. But developing those new disciplined habits had an unexpected effect on Mark's life. They altered his personality. He went from being free-spirited to hyper-conscientious and, as a consequence, more tightly wound. But here's the funny thing about Mark's journey now that he's starting to outline the next chapter of his life. I've been working diligently to become more irresponsible. The challenge I find myself kind of engaged in now is taking some of the sort of uh, rigor out of my 
daily ritual and creating more space for family and, and friends and relationships and laughter and joy. But I, interestingly, I find this transition much harder. But it should be hard, shouldn't it? What Mark did in his 20s was profound because it was profoundly unusual. We tend to think personality is like eye color, unchangeable. Mark tinkered with his once before and somehow managed to get away with it. But at age 50, is it possible to make fundamental changes to your personality? I would have been skeptical until I encountered a new book by neuroscientist Christian Jarrett. It's called Be Who You Want, Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. Christian says that our personalities are a lot more fluid than we think. Psychologists believe that there are five big personality traits. These are gonna come up a bunch in our conversation, so listen closely. Those five personality traits are extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. Christian says these traits aren't fixed and they aren't binary either, they are dials. And through a variety of means that he's about to describe, we can spin those dials however we want. Which brings us back to Mark. My question for, for Christian is, how does one actually become a little more reckless and irresponsible? Lucky for Mark, Christian has answers. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Christian Jarrett, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Hi, Rufus. Thanks for having me. Well, Christian, you went back in the course of writing this book and read the teacher's reports that you received when you were in high school. And they said things like, Christian's nature and personality do tend to draw comments such as too quiet. Your English teacher said he needs to speak more. When you were 16, your tutor wrote, I'm not sure how, if at all, Christian can change his naturally placid manner. But then in your freshman year of college, you busted out you partied, you say, all night, most nights of the week. Your dissertation advisor said he'd given up on you because he'd pigeonholed you as a hedonist. But you'd go on to graduate with the highest honors and then become a cognitive neuroscientist. So was this just an experiment in hypersocial partying at early college? Uh, or do you think your personality actually has changed in, in, in ways that have been ongoing in, in the last few decades? Yeah, I, d I definitely felt like I had changed. And I think my, f my final couple of years of high school were a little bit disappointing on it, like socially, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think when I headed off to college, I had that as a goal, I suppose, fit in more, build up a friendship group and come out of my shell. And I think that that makes a big difference. That's, that's a theme, you know, that I um, return to in my book about how where our personality traits are somewhat shaped by our higher goals in life and at that stage of my life yeah when i arrived at college i i definitely had that as a goal and i very very early on made a very good friend who was one of the strongest out and out extroverts you could meet he seemed to befriend you know every, every single person he met in the corridor and he encouraged me to go out and that helped a lot and that's another 
that's another factor that comes up in the research, you know, how we're influenced by our relationships, especially our, our closer friends and our closer relatives. So I think those dynamics definitely had had an influence on me and I felt those firsthand. But another thing I say on the book is that, of course, the, the story is never ending through our lives. You know, the forces shaping us continue to change. And I, I quietened down again later on in, yeah, in my 20s. I seemed to go back into my shell when I had my first editorial job. And so I felt my personality shift again. So, yeah, it's you know, recognizing the malleability of personality and the potential we have to take some control over that is, as I say in the book, a kind of philosophy to live by. It's not a job to be done that's, you know, done one day. Well, your experience of your own evolving personality, no doubt, is part of what inspired you to write Be Who You Want, Unlocking the Science of Personality Change. Let's get into it, starting with big idea number one, unlocking the science of personality change. If you'd met Femi as a 21-year-old, I am sure you'd have formed the impression that he had a highly disagreeable personality. He'd been banned from the area he grew up in, charged with possession of drugs, and forced to wear an electronic monitoring tag. Yet fast forward to today, and Femi, or Anthony Joshua as he's now known, is heralded as an impeccable role model of good manners and charitable behavior. Joshua, an Olympic gold medalist and two-time world heavyweight boxing champion, has said, I could have gone the other way, but I choose to be respectful. Research findings back this up. Whereas William James, the great American psychologist, said that personality was set like plaster by age 30, modern longitudinal studies that have followed the same people over many decades have shown that our personality traits, in fact, continue to change all the way through life. That doesn't mean that personality is meaningless. There is a thread of continuity but it isn't fixed. As the psychologist Samin Vazir put it, when it comes to personality, there is plenty to hold on to and plenty we can change. Okay, so this evidence that personalities can change over time is kind of extraordinary. The longest ever personality study published in 2016 that you cite in the book compared personality traits at the age of 14 and then again at 77. And I'm quoting from your book here, it failed to find much correlation between the two times. So people at age 77 bear almost no resemblance in terms of their personalities to how they were described at age 14. This is extraordinary. And I think it's inconsistent with the stories that we tell ourselves about people and how people behave, right? I, I mean, it, it seems to me we, we have a confirmation bias when we talk about people. We say, it was already clear when he was three years old or four or five that he would become this person, right? We, I, do, do you think we cherry pick our memories of people in order to tell stories of continuity? Uh, yeah, I, th I think we do, yeah. It's, it's easy, isn't it, to find patterns, illusory patterns, uh, in, in these kind of lifelong stories. But yeah, I mean, one way of thinking about that Scottish study is imagining having a get together in retirement with your, uh, you know, your school friends and like imagining, do you think you would see something of them as you knew them when you were at school? Do you think you would still see aspects of their personality? You imagine everything you know, these people have been through their lives, the marriages, the jobs, the careers and heartbreaks and illnesses and whatever it might be, uh, you know, it's no wonder that that transformation was discovered. And, you know, what's so interesting to me is that this is on the one hand threatening to us, right? Because we, we want to believe that humans have an inner essence that's unchangeable. On the other hand, 
we all want to believe that we can change. And, and, and so there's a, great, there's a great promise in this news, but it's also somehow threatening to the way we like to think of the world and the people around us. Yeah, it is it's somewhat disorientating and unsettling because you know, we, we make a lot of assumptions about each other to navigate our social relationships. But this was something I wanted to be careful about in the book because sometimes what happens when this topic is discussed, like in the popular media, is you, you, you tend to get a reaction that says personality is a complete myth, that there's no such thing as personality. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that, and that isn't what I found. So there is, there is a degree of stability, um, especially you know, over the time span of, of a few years or, or even a couple of decades. It, it does take you know, these really long studies often to expose uh, significant meaningful change. So personality is a meaningful concept. It's just it's not fixed. It's not concrete in the way that William James said. That there is uh, this you know, freedom we have. And of course, these findings about people's personalities changing across uh, a lifetime, a lot of that or most of it will have been passive. You know, it, it's what's happened to them without them deliberately choosing it or steering it. Yeah, yeah. So what excited me was, you know, discovering that there is this malleability and what if we seized some control over it? What if we were more intentional about it? And you say 50% of personality is genetic. The rest is up for grabs. So we have a rudder that we can control to a degree in this process of evolving as individuals, which you point out, it's very clear that we, that we each do. Yeah. So all sorts of things shape our personality traits from, you know, the kind of micro scale, which would be things like our our mood in a given situation, uh, major life events, our relationships, who we're with, the jobs we take on, uh, our physical health, all these things are exerting a force on our personalities, even, you know, in a way that we often wouldn't think about. And of course, they all afford opportunities for, like you said, as you say, like taking control of that rudder and even down to considering how things like uh, your mood, uh, uh, tiredness, even what you have had to eat and drink on a micro scale from moment to moment, they are shaping the expression of our traits. And if we change our habits and routines in life and the major decisions we make, we can start to get a, some control over these influences. You know, one thing you, you, you make clear in the early pages of the book is that personality really matters. I mean, I mean, one can say, on the one hand, isn't it wonderful that we have a range of personalities out in the world and it's, it's sort of like spices in a spice drawer. On the other hand, there are a number of personality traits that profoundly impact our health, our success in our careers, and our happiness. So this process of changing one's personality, or at least modifying one's personality, can have really profound impacts on the quality of your life to some degree. What do you think are some of the biggest factors that people might want to be aware of as they think about how to evolve their personalities? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's one of the things that struck me the most when I was researching the book was just how many associations there are between the traits and different outcomes in life and just how strong they are, these associations, as compared with things like our economic background or our educational background. So, for example, openness to experience, one of the big five traits is even linked with your risk of uh, developing dementia later in life, for example, probably because if we're more open-minded, we're more intellectually curious, 
we're more likely to be, you know, mentally active and that has a protective effect, you know, helps to build up cognitive reserve. A trait like neuroticism, you know, these are people who get stressed easily, tend to worry a lot. Trait neuroticism, not surprisingly, puts you at increased risk of uh, stress in life, stressful events, relationship breakups, risk of depression and, and anxiety. Other trait, conscientiousness, that's uh, to do with how disciplined and orderly you are, how much willpower you have, how organized. That's associated with better health later in life. It's associated with better career success. Extroversion. This is, I would say the one that is the most controversial is this, the yes. extroversion. Yes. In, yeah. <laughs> so I've had, since the book came out, you know, I've had a few people contact me and say, why have I got it in for introverts? And and I really, I, I don't, and I count myself as an introvert and I don't have it in for introverts. And I loved Susan Cain's book. Of course, we, we need introverts in the world and there are huge advantages, but as an introvert myself, I can also see the advantages to dialing up my extroversion. And, and a lot of becoming more extroverted is about being willing to take more risks. That's actually part of it. It's not just about being more chatty and sociable. Yeah. It's having that willingness to go towards potential reward and, and believing, you know, being more optimistic and opening yourself up to serendipity and chance encounters. You know, that's really what I'm arguing for there. And, and, and you find extroversion stronger extroversion is related to more happiness in life and i can see why because you're more likely to have more relationships more friends you're more likely to you know have a greater range of experiences in life because of that willingness to take risks in in the early pages of the book all all of this evidence of the impact on our lives of these varying levels of these big five personality traits are, are just extraordinary i mean like the diversity of gut bacteria which is associated with health and longevity is higher, I think you say, among extroverts and those who are lower in neuroticism. It profoundly impacts, you know, happiness, success, longevity. So let's share for our listeners the big five personality traits. We have extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness. And it seems like, as you describe it, we optimally, we want to be high or higher anyway in extroversion, agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness, but we'd like to be low in neuroticism. <laughs> is, is, that, is that the uh, desired outcome? That's, yeah, in a nutshell, I, I would say, um, with some caveats, I guess, around going too far with some of those. So extreme conscientiousness, you know, could, can risk slipping into unhealthy perfectionism or, or obsessiveness. Extreme extroversion can, you know, manifest in addiction problems, you know, just when that hunger for reward or the, and, and a buzz just goes too far. And maybe there's a slight caveat around agreeableness, just in that in certain environments, maybe like cutthroat business, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're very high in agreeability, you, you, that could be put you at a disadvantage, I would say. Yes. And this is something bearing in mind, you know, these are dimensions. So it's not, it's not like one or the other, you know, you either are in extroverted or not. So when I'm, yes. Yes. when I give this advice about dialing up your extroversion, I'm not really arguing for all of us to become, you know, wild, uh, life and soul of the party type characters. It's more probably shifting ourselves more towards the medium if we're very withdrawn and introverted is what is more what I'm making a case for. Our personality traits aren't on-off switches, they're dials, and we can move those dials around. Coming up after the break, Christian tells us how. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Christian Jarrett, has been arguing that our personalities are not etched in stone. They're sketched in pencil. Now, in his second big idea, he tells us how we can update those sketches. You can choose to change. In my freshman year at college, I met a student who was deeply frustrated. He wanted his time at college to be fun and full of friends and socializing. Yet he was extremely introverted and spent most of his time alone. It was inspiring to see what he did next as he made specific plans for how to come out of his shell, including proactively seeking out more friends and beginning work at a campus bar. Studies have shown that people with desires to change one or more of their traits, and by the way, surveys show most of us have these desires. People with these desires are able to change, especially if they make specific plans for how they will change their behavior and persist with enough dedication that these changes become habitual. On the other hand, desiring change, but failing to follow through with any practical plan of action is likely to backfire. In Be Who You Want, I lay out numerous practical strategies for how you might change each of the five main personality traits. The most effective approach is to mix strategies that will change you from the inside out, such as lowering your neuroticism by practicing intentional training to increase your control over your thoughts, and from the outside in, such as by practicing the situation selection strategy, that is choosing activities and company that bring out in you the traits you wish to develop. You say that there is outside-in change and inside-out change. Let's start with outside in, because this strikes me as like the easiest thing to accomplish, right? And, and you've mentioned earlier that choosing the people with whom we spend time is important, that to some degree, we become the people that we surround ourselves with. How much evidence is there of this? There are two kind of ways that our friends, I think, and relate, close relationships can influence our personality. So I think some of it is role modeling. So there's something called the Michelangelo effect in, in psychology, mm-hmm. uh, which is we're more likely to become the person that we aspire to be if, uh, let's say, our best friend or our close partner has those traits that we aspire to. They role model those traits. So they, get, they give us a role model to follow and they're more likely to kind of reward us and give us positive feedback when we're acting in accordance with the, the person we want to be. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And I, there's another phenomenon in psychology that's called affective presence. And it's, it's almost like another personality trait, you, you could say. And it, because what affective presence is, is the way that you tend to make other people feel when you're with them. And you, and you could reflect on this with your own friends and colleagues and family. You, you, you might be able to think of different people you know and how you feel differently uh, when you're with them because of their affective presence. So I think that's another way our own personalities can be shaped by the people that we're with. That's so nice. I love this, this concept of affective presence, that there are some people who can have a profoundly positive impact in the moment on 
the behavior and feelings of people around them. And of course, I think we all hopefully aspire to be those people, right? We, you know, that have a positive affective presence. And what's interesting about what you're saying here is that the impact of other people on us is both long-term and short-term, right? Like on the one hand, our closest friends and spouse and so on will, will really meaningfully impact the way that we evolve and the person that we become. But also on a short-term basis, we behave differently in the presence of different people. I think we've all experienced this. I know it's been true in your life, Christian. Can you tell us about your, your grandmother? I think you called her Nana. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny looking back. Um, I was like a different person when I was with her. And I, I've never really fully worked out why she brought out that side of me as a, as a kid and a teenager and a uh, she 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 passed away, I think, when I was like in my mid-20s. So I, I felt her influence up to about my mid-20s. And yeah, whenever I was with her, I was just, it was quite extreme. <laughs> I, I wouldn't curse or I wouldn't put a foot wrong. I, I was like, my manners were impeccable. I think, and I, I think it might be because that's kind of how she saw me. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I lived up to that expectation, I think. And it's almost like having, having set that precedent my whole life, I never wanted to, I never wanted to destroy, destroy right. the illusion. So I lived, yeah, whenever, whenever I was with her, I would always sort of take on this role of being absolutely uh, angelic. And it, it was quite exhausting. Uh, I mean, I loved her to bits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she she was lovely. She was she was very sweet with me. And um, but it was almost exhausting uh, sometimes, you know, to be that good uh, all, the whole time. But you might have become just a little bit more angelic on a long term basis because of those efforts, perhaps. That, that's certainly true. And I, and I guess. The re- one, one reason I brought it up in the book is this was my grandmother, so I, I, only, I only saw her occasionally. It, it was, you know, f- sort of fairly inconsequential, if you like. But if you imagine uh, your listeners might be able to think of analogies of other people in their lives who bring out, I'm not saying the angelic side, but might have this strong influence on their own behavior and their own manifestation of their own personality. And if it's someone who you spend a lot of time with, I don't know, it could be a colleague who you work closely with, um, who, let's say they bring out your um, short-tempered side for whatever reason, you know, they get on yeah. your nerves. Yeah. Uh, it could be, it could be a partner, unfortunately, or, or, it could, yes, yes, uh, yes. or a friend, I don't know, a friend who, let's say, for whatever reason, maybe, I don't know, you, you feel um, subdued when you're with them, or maybe they intimidate you a little bit or that kind of thing. And I, and I suppose, yeah, 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 what I'm thinking about is if you spend a lot of time with those kind of people, they over the long term, they are going to be shaping your personality. I, 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 that, that's my suggestion. And, and, your, and your advice to listeners would be that it's wise to be attuned to the impact that the people around us have on us because these personality influences can be over time uh, pretty profound. Yeah, they, they can accumulate over time. And maybe sometimes we just hang out with the same people or... I don't know, or chat to the same colleague at the coffee break at work or whatever out of habit rather than actually reflecting for a moment on whether we it's good for us and brings out the better side of our, our own personalities. And so it maybe is worth being more conscious and deliberate about it for sure. You know, I, I, it's funny. I found this to be somewhat true about places in addition to people that I, I've joked that when I'm in San Francisco, I feel slightly more cynical than the average person. <laughs> and in New York City, I feel slightly more earnest than the average person. 
And I prefer the feeling of walking around feeling slightly more earnest and optimistic <laughs> to the feeling of walking around and feeling a little, a little bit cynical. So <laughs> it's, one the, it's maybe one of the reasons I live in New York City, right? Um, but it, it, has that come up at all in your research? Like that? It has, yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but there is definitely research on how you get these geographical influences on personality, and yet they get these kind of grouping effects where certain cities attract. Um, I think there's some debate, you know, how much the city attracts people with a certain personality versus how much it shapes people's personalities when they move there. Interesting. So, yeah. Maybe both. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a whole field of inquiry. Yeah, for sure. And it's, um, yeah, I love what you described there. It's, uh, I can relate to that as well. Um, I, li I live somewhere very quiet, uh, uh, pretty rural in, in a small village. I definitely feel more introverted here where I go to London. It's definitely, you know, for a day for, for business or whatever, I definitely feel... Yeah, my optimism is greater. There's a, a sort of excitement about what what's possible. I, f I think I feel more ambitious when I go there. So yeah, I can relate to what you're mm -hmm. saying for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and life circumstances also change us. Can you tell us about the impact of marriage? <laughs> yeah. So their findings suggest that, well, extroversion, I think, decreases after people get married, perhaps not, not a surprise. There was another study found people's they didn't measure it in terms of the big five, but I think they found people's ability to forgive increased after getting married and conscientiousness. I think this was for men more than women. Conscientiousness tends to go up after getting married. So yeah, you, you do see these kind of personality changes after major life experiences. But I, I think one thing that I noticed reviewing this line of research is it's actually quite hard for the researchers to pin down reliable patterns of personality change after major life events. And that's that's probably because they think, after all, there's a, such a huge subjective quality to major life experiences, whether it's marriage or divorce, th those kind of things, because um, you know, one person might be devastated by divorce, let's say, whereas another person might be hugely relieved uh, and feel liberated. And so what is for sure is that these major life changes are bound to shape your personality. They're bound to have an influence. I think what's much harder and what's been trickier to ha find consistent results for is what uh, form that impact will take on your personality. Right, right, yeah. right. But, it, but it, do it does seem pretty highly predictable that marriage makes you boring, as you, as you <laughs> say in the book, in the sense that yeah. I think there was a study with 15,000 people, a German study, uh, that showed consistently reductions in extroversion and openness to experience. Oh, there you <laughs> right? go. Which, yeah, yeah. It's true. And it's not really a surprise if um, if a newlywed couple are all loved up and they're not interested in the outside world for a little while. Uh, good for them. But yeah, it's going to manifest as um, probably going to manifest as less extroversion and less openness, as you say. And well, and, and this may fit into what we were talking about earlier as appropriate changes in modality in different phases of life, right? When we're make, making and caring for young babies and in the critical building part of our careers, it's an appropriate time to just ratchet up that conscientiousness and, and, and maybe ratchet down the, uh, you know, openness to new experiences. You know, that, that, that might just, that, that might be a rational choice. That's exactly what um, studies that look at how the traits evolve and mature through life on average. That's that's the, exactly the pattern that is seen with conscientiousness. It tends to peak in midlife when our responsibilities are at their greatest. 
and and that's good news, you know. So although I'm arguing in this book for seizing control over these things, it, it's good to hear that yes, some of this is going to happen naturally, and we we peak in conscientiousness in midlife, and then it goes down and down, and it and it tends to reach its lowest point in late life. And there's something researchers call uh, La Dolce Vita effect, the sweet life in, in old age, where conscientiousness is at its lowest, and that's because. Uh, not for everyone, obviously, but for a lot of older people, their responsibilities are at their lowest. Um, they're retired. They don't have a job to worry about. Their kids are growing up. They can live freely. And this, this is why we can't trust the grandparents with the kids by the swimming pool. <laughs> but it is like, you know, I, I concluded that the only way to, to be a grandparent is to first be a parent. And because the grandparents really have it good. And by the way, I love being a parent. For the record, if, if any children or spouse is listening, I love, I love being a parent. <laughs> but the grandparents really have a fantastic uh, dynamic, which is they fundamentally don't have to have to pull their hair out, but they can they can be a source of joy. And, you know, well, you, you also say that our surroundings make us happy. And I love this line. You say, seek out sunlit places that promise more joy. <laughs> Um, do these choices, these daily choices about where we go and about our environment, do they make a, a meaningful impact? Psychologists have looked at this with something called the situation selection strategy. So they, they trained a group of uh, volunteers before a weekend to rehearse saying uh, to themselves before the weekend, you know, I'm, I'm going to actively choose to do things and be in places and be with people uh, who make me feel good, um, who make me enjoy uh, more positive emotion. And, th and they compared that group with a control group who, who made some, you know, no, no plans as such. They just had a weekend as, as, as they normally would out of habit. And yeah, after the weekend, the people who'd done the situation selection strategy had, uh, yeah, lo and behold, as the researchers predicted, they did, they had enjoyed more positive emotion and I, I suppose the argument I'm making is, yeah, if you if you adopt that philosophy or strategy writ large in your life and be more mindful about what you do, where you go and who you're with, you're going to enjoy more positive mood and emotion. And we know that that because of the studies that have looked at cor correlations between emotion and personality traits, we know that over time that's going to bring out more positive aspects to your personality, uh, you know, lower neuroticism. Uh, more conscientiousness, more agreeability, and and so on. So, it, it's definitely a one way uh, to to be more intentional about shaping the kind of person you are. Yeah, yeah. This is it, it's taken me a while to learn this and apply it to my own life, but I, I have found that that small daily rituals like taking walks while on the telephone or listening to books, audiobooks, or podcasts, you know, makes me happy. Um, just bicycling to the river at the at, at sunset uh, to throw the ball with my son or read a book. That 20, 30 minute excursion just really brightens the whole day. You know, you, I mean, that those, I, I've gotten much better at learning and seeing these the patterns of like, you know, these small decisions can really kind of profoundly impact your your affect, your your kind of point of view. They can, and, and you know, in in the world of psychotherapy, there's a there's an intervention called behavioral activation, because one of the things that happens to people when they become depressed and are experiencing you know chronic low mood is they they start doing less and less, and exactly what you're describing is I think sometimes we can have inertia or we can fall into habits or you know routines in life that deprive us of those moments of joy that you're you're describing. 
And so it, I think it helps just to remind yourself, build these joyful habits into your lifestyle and your routine. And over again, over time, that's going to shape you in, in, in positive ways, as you describe. And uh, as well, removing the negative kind of routines as well. So just from my side, something I... I learned quite a few years ago is I out of almost force of habit, you know, I'd got into the, I'd got into um, the practice of engaging in these kind of Twitter spats, you know, it seemed fun at first, you know, having these arguments with strangers, you don't even know about politics or whatever on, on Twitter or whatever it might, might be. And it, it uh, it's, uh, it, it took for a while for me to realize what it was kind of doing to me because it would leave, I would always come away in a grotty mood. And then ever since I, I, one day I made a decision, I'm just not going to do that anymore because I almost felt that it was, I don't know, changing me, I would say. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it was like changing me because I was doing it like every sure, day. For, sure. Yeah. So I, I think these, it, it sounds um, simple, but I think changing some of these routines in life ramping up the things that make us feel joyful and um, removing the things that make us feel rubbish long term it's going to have a meaningful effect on on you as a person and and your experience of life and and, and maybe this is the sort of the fulcrum between inside out change and outside in change i mean that at some at some point the outside in starts changing habits of thought as you say right because uh, um, you, you point out that your personality stems partly from habits of thought. By changing these habits, you can change the kind of person you become. And so these habits of thought, I mean, you, all, you also talk about meditation, reading novels, taking psychedelics even, or cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Are, are these ways that we could just change the patterns of our internal monologue? Yeah, so, I mean, to take trait neuroticism, uh, a lot of psychotherapy is really geared around that especially cbt cognitive behavioral therapy it's all about actually changing these habits of thought and and studies have shown that after uh, psychotherapy you see meaningful changes for the for the better in in people's personality traits and so psychotherapy has a wealth of techniques many of which we can use ourselves to change our habits of thought and therefore change our personalities so um you know, off the top of my head, there are things like scheduling a kind of a worry window in your day, mm. compartmentalizing, you know, when you're going to worry. We, you know, most of us are prone to worry at one time or another. What's horrible is when you feel it's out of control and those thoughts kind of spiral at inconvenient times of the day or you, you feel haunted and hounded by them. There's an approach, uh, metacognitive therapy, you know, that teaches us set aside, you know, like half an hour toward the end of the day for when you're going to do your worrying. It's just one example that there's another thing called affective labeling, which is when you're experiencing a strong emotion, try to identify what that emotion is, give it a name, label it. Mm. Uh, and the research suggests that helps deprive it of its intensity. It creates some distance between you and the emotion. So, I, I mean, I could go on. There are, there are various of these kind of tools and strategies from psychotherapy that can cultivate more advantageous and healthy habits of, of thought, which, again, over time, it's not going to happen overnight, but over time, it's going to, it's going to have a, a beneficial influence on your, on your personality. And at one point you make in the book that resonates for me is that, is that change does not need to be dramatic, Right, you can have very small incremental changes, right? That and even even though some of these things we're talking about, 
you know, meditating for 10 minutes or taking walks outside or, you know, uh, reading a novel seem like very minor things, but to the extent that they start to build on some kind of change in personality traits, that you can then benefit from the power of virtuous cycles. And in my own life, I found this to be a major factor that, that you can, you know, that, that once you start a virtuous cycle, you see those incremental gains and you and it it causes you to want to continue that pattern right so you can it's it's often just this very small initial step that can lead to this virtuous cycle yeah that's exactly how i see it because i think so much more of our lives really is down to luck and serendipity than we probably like to think and yeah and so i don't think it takes an awful lot to change the odds on some of these things or you, you think how many relationships began because of a chance encounter or, um, you know, a job or that you may not have applied for if you didn't have the confidence or weren't willing to take that gamble. So the, the trajectory of people's careers, you know, will often pivot on a single point in time, which if you have worked on your personality traits in some of the ways I describe in the book, you know, you're going to increase your your chances of experiencing serendipity in life. And it doesn't have to be huge. That's why I was saying earlier about, you know, just dialing up your extroversion a little, not not to make yourself, yeah. You, you might have that chance encounter that you wouldn't have had uh, a few months back if you hadn't have made those changes to your to your personality. Yeah, no, in, in my own life, I, I, I feel like, and I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been talking with my siblings and my parents <laughs> about how they remember me. I feel like I, I, I was a relatively shy, younger person, and I've become, you know, pretty extroverted, you know, and but I see that as having been a very gradual process, right? Very, and, and a lot of it is about this virtuous cycle of realizing like, wow, I just am a little bit happier at the end of the day if I talk with a few more people. And I, I remember as a child, my father has this incredible ability to strike up conversations with strangers. I'd go to pick up the dry cleaning and the, and the guy would say, hey, tell your father that Joe said hi. You know, please tell him I said hi and I hope he's well. <laughs> and same thing when we go to the car, you know, pick up the car at the service station. And I eventually say like, dad, what are you saying to these people? <laughs> like, why do all these, all these people love my father? What, what on earth is he saying to them? And he just took an interest in them, right? He just asked them about their lives and, and wished them well. And it's taken me decades to become someone like my father, you know, who, who strikes up conversations with somebody you chat with and eventually becomes friends with people that, that way. And, and it really is, ends up for me creating a, a fair amount of joy, but it took 20 or 30 years of incremental sort of positive reinforcement to develop that sort of level of comfort. And, you know, and so that's just one experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. And you, you can start with just modest changes and modest steps because one thing that you achieve in doing that is you're kind of signaling to yourself. You, you can start to see yourself a little bit differently. Um, and that's so encouraging. You know, you set up that kind of positive reinforcement. And, and if you, like you're describing, you know, if you, if you start to have more positive encounters and more positive experiences, um, it, I don't know, it, it doesn't have to be about extroversion. It could be... Um, you know, through increasing your agreeability, let's say it could be walking away from an argument one day or something like that. You start to see yourself yes, as a, yes. yeah, see yourself as a calmer person and you reap the rewards. And then 
you know, you reflect on it and you see what you've gained. And it, like you said, it's, uh, sets in play this virtuous circle. So that's why yeah, yeah. even modest targets at first, um, it doesn't matter how small they are. It's, it's if it's a step in the right direction. Well, Christian, I, I really want to hear what you want to change about yourself. Do you have, um, some objectives? I think my one that I struggle with the most is dining down my neuroticism, if I'm honest. And I, I think I blame my career reading and writing about and talking about psychology for that one. If you're constantly immersed in some of these techniques and the theories, I blame that on making me more neurotic. That's my excuse. But so that was my confession would be that's the trait that I struggle with the most that I would like to be more emotionally resilient. I'd like to be less angsty and it's an ongoing it's an ongoing challenge i would say <laughs> say christian succeeds say he's able to make those tweaks to his personality will he still be christian that to me is one of the most interesting questions to have emerged in this conversation can we aspire to change while retaining our authenticity we're going to dig into that question right after the break Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. So Christian's first big idea is that our personalities are more fluid than we tend to think. Our key traits, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, and conscientiousness are dials that we can adjust. That was his second big idea. Now in his third and final big idea, Christian says that you can update your personality while remaining true to yourself. An understandable concern for anyone who is seeking to change their personality is that they are not being true to themselves, that they are somehow being fake. I sympathize. And I wouldn't want anyone to feel pressured by others to change if they don't want to. However, it's equally important to realize that you aren't defined or limited by your past. Research studies that have monitored people's feelings of authenticity from moment to moment have shown that we feel most real or true to ourselves when we're acting more in accordance with our so-called ideal selves, the kind of person we aspire to be in the future, rather than in accordance with our actual selves as measured by our current personality trait profile. Similarly, relationship research has shown that people feel most authentic when they are with a partner who supports them in acting more like their ideal self. This makes sense. Arguably, the real you is the person you aspire to be. When you begin making efforts to change your traits, it might feel awkward and effortful at first, but persist long enough and it will become second nature. 
Bear in mind too that you are so much more than your traits. You are your values and goals and principles. There's nothing fake about developing your traits to help you achieve those goals. Well, we talked a little bit earlier about introversion versus extroversion. And, and you mentioned that this is one of the most controversial subjects in the book, that, you, that you, maybe you've gotten the most pushback so far from introverts who feel like your book is not adequately acknowledging the merits of introversion. But you, you do cite a good deal of evidence that, that extroverts are just plain happier, healthier, more successful, and that all of us, whether introverts or extroverts, are happier in the moment that we push ourselves to engage socially. How do you square this with the, with the view of many introverts that they're very happy with their current approach to, to the world? Thank you very much. <laughs> well, one thing that I think I would say is if they, if they don't see any impediment whatsoever, you know, if they are genuinely happy with the way they are, the way their relationships are going and their career is going, yeah, why change? I mean, I'm, there's nothing wrong with being an introvert. My message really is only for people who f maybe feel somewhat thwarted or frustrated or held back by their strong introversion. You know, if they feel they're missing out, if they feel it's holding them back from opportunities and holding them back in their career, my message is really for those kind of people. And, and in that context, I'm saying you're not being fake by seeking to change, to become more extroverted in that context, because trying to achieve what matters to you in life is not being fake, you know, as I said in that little snippet. Uh, and none of us are fixed, you know, uh, none of us are just going to stay the same person uh, all through life, which is not, that doesn't happen. Uh, we, we change all the time, we learn things, we're, we're affected by our experiences. And so it's almost magic, it's almost like magical thinking to believe that there's some es essence, some fixed essence of, of you that you mustn't interfere with because that would be fake. So you, you're going to be changing, you're going to be evolving. What could be more authentic than changing yourself in intentional ways that in line with your values and hopes and that make it more possible for you to do what matters to you in life? You know, I think that's being authentic. I, I think maybe one of the reasons for the pushback from especially strong introverts is probably because no one likes to be told how to change, you know, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm telling people how to change. It's, it has to come from within the person. It has to be something they want. So I'm not telling introverts they should be more extroverted. And I agree, it would be annoying and boring, boring if we were all carbon copies of each other. It's more, um, I think that it's, it's certain aspects of being more extroverted that I think introvert, even strong introverts will find that they benefit from. And that's what the research suggests. Um, in other words, there are studies that show when introverted people act more extroverted, even strong introverts tend to be happier. They, they say, they describe feeling happier when they're doing things and, and acting in a more extroverted manner. Studies even show they, f mo most of us, whatever our baseline personality traits, feel more authentic when we're acting more extroverted. And you see, that's, that's probably because after all, the, it's such a basic human need, isn't it? Connecting with other people is such a basic human need. That's probably why. So it's that aspect of being more extroverted. I would imagine extroversion is also about me being more, having more energy and being more active. It's not just the social side. So again, 
you see in some respects acting more extroverted is being more engaged with the world so it's being more connected with others that's what it leads to it's being more active and engaged so this goes back to what we were saying before it's partly about finding the right people and places and uh activities and jobs that that um allow you to be more open uh, and connect feel connected and feel engaged and in that case you will feel more authentic and you will be acting more extroverted so it's it doesn't mean you have to be the kind of person who goes to a party every night of the week you know um it's not as one-dimensional as that well i i really like this idea that there's not a single optimal personality but we want to have range like we we, we want to be able to access these different capabilities. And so we live in a culture of, 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 of optimization. We're all trying to optimize ourselves and our lives. And this book will be an incredible tool for a lot of people in, in doing so. But I think that, I think in this culture of optimization, it's easy to forget that there's not a single optimal modality. There is instead a range of, of, of kind of approaches to the world that we want to and, and tools that we want to have to, you know, to live a full life. Do you think that's true? Yeah. And I, and I think the optimal suite of personality traits to have, you know, or trait levels to have is, you know, as we've discussed, is likely to vary at different stages of your life. So that's, that's one of the things that yeah, I, I loved about writing this book. And what I found out is just, I found it quite liberating in the end, you know, don't let anybody tell you that mm. you're stuck in a certain way or that yes yeah you won't be able to do a certain thing or a certain job because of your nature uh i think the the wealth of research i uncovered in the the stories i uncovered of people's life stories as well just showed this huge capacity for change that we have it and yeah you, you could change one way and then back again so yeah be it, come out of your shell for <laughs> for a while if it suits your current goals and values um like when you're at college uh later on you go back into your shell rediscover your introverted nature when you're settled down uh, married and have a quiet job if whatever helps you feel fulfilled so i, I hope it is liberating and empowering for readers uh, to help them achieve the change they want, not mm. not to change because someone told them to or to f to fit in, but to just be you know, achieve what they want in life and 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 find that contentment and fulfillment. And if people want to, I, I found it incredibly useful to take the personality tests and do the exercises that are in your book. If people want to do that online, can they go to your website? Uh, yeah, they can. So I. I I've put the links to the the main tests that I mentioned in the book. I've put them on my website, christianjarrett.com. Wonderful. And in the arc of the life of Mark Harris, which we've shared at the top of the show, he went from really legendary party animal to hyper-conscientious attorney to hyper-conscientious entrepreneur. And now a couple decades later, he's having trouble releasing some of that hyper-conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And he misses some of his past self, which I think is so interesting. Do you have any advice for him? So I, I would recommend a few things. Um, so awe, the experience of the emotion awe, A-W-E, is has been shown to increase openness to experience. So 
that could be uh it, those kind of when you experience that emotion you know you feel small it makes you feel kind of smaller relative to the the grandness of the universe and and everything so watching na- nature documentaries spending time in nature taking hikes in the wilderness would be one way um other studies suggest immersing yourself in culture really does help to boost openness to experience so reading, traveling, um, going to the opera, you know, exposing yourself to the unfamiliar. Um, and in terms of neuroticism, well, you know, I touched on some of those sort of therapeutic techniques, but another thing is kind of seeking out those kind of peak experiences in life. It doesn't have to be, I mean, the cliche is climbing to the top of a mountain, but it doesn't have to be pushing yourself to the limits, doing something where you really feel challenged and stretched that changes your perspective in life. It could be taking, it could be having a psychedelic trip. <laughs> Not that I'm uh, recommending that for everybody, but those those kind of peak experiences, out of the ordinary experiences actually mm-hmm. can, it, it could be going and living, I mean, difficult in a pandemic, but it could be going and spending a little bit of time living abroad. These kind of things that recal- they, they recalibrate us, they recalibrate our minds, our brains. It's like a reset. And that's been shown to lower, lower neuroticism. So maybe that's something your friend could try. Well, Christian, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for taking time out of editing magazines and enjoying the English countryside and raising your miniature schnauzer <laughs> to be with us today. We so enjoyed the conversation. Oh, it was, uh, it was my pleasure, Rufus. And it was great to meet you and chat to you. Thank you very much. A few days after I spoke with Christian, I called up my friend Mark to tell him what I'd learned. So, Mark, we've discussed your predicament with Christian Yes. Uh, and he seems to think that you might be a little bit neurotic. Um, what, what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you feel neurotic? I might be quick to say no, but I actually think it is kind of a feature of this personality that I've developed. And specifically, like, especially as it relates to this just obsessive need to be hyperproductive all the time. I mean, I think you know this about me, but I just... I have so many to-do lists. I've had to develop a system such that all my to-do lists can talk to one another. I have like a master to-do list (laughs) and then I have all these different to-do lists organized by categories. And so I don't know. I don't know at what point do you cross into neuroticism? I'm not sure. But what is the average number of things on a normal person's to-do list? Because for me, I probably have a you know, over a hundred things on my to-do list at any one time. Well, I think maybe what we need to do is just modify some of the things that are on your to-do list. Uh, (laughs) You know, Christian tells us that um, he seems to think you could benefit from more openness to experience, reminders of the grandness of the universe. Uh, Among his suggestions, Mark, there's hiking. I think you're already a hiker, so I think you may have that covered. Reading, I, I know you to be a reader. Going to the opera, now, now that, that might be a, a fresh one for you. That, that's um, one treatment I haven't tried. Right? So we could, I mean, you might, that might deserve a place somewhere in the 90s on one of your half dozen to-do <laughs> lists. Uh, he was somewhat hesitant about recommending a psychedelic trip, as am I. This is a family podcast, mm. but that was mentioned. I think international travel is probably an easy sell. I could do that. I, I have a different suggestion, Mark, which is that if this process of developing a set of habits and repeating them with great fidelity over many years resulted in some new personality traits 
that became semi-permanent. Maybe the solution to modifying that is to develop a new set of habits, a new set of irresponsible and spontaneous and celebratory and festive and joyous and in-the-moment habits, a new set of behaviors that if we repeat these these new habits, Mark, for a couple decades, I think you'll, that, that then could become a new, a, a, a full reversion to the in-the-moment Mark Harris. And I volunteer myself to be your partner in crime. I, Rufus, I, I, I couldn't imagine a more capable coach and mentor and partner <laughs> in that effort than yourself. Um, and it sounds good to me. It, it, whether it takes or not, it'll probably result in some short-term joy. And, uh, and if it does take, it could be dangerous because at, at the very least, we've learned how hard it is to undo habits once they're well-formed and deeply grooved. Absolutely. Well, this, this, this feels like full circle, Mark, because I, I feel like I may be becoming your rush captain in this conversation. <laughs> I, I feel like you've been uh, rushing me this way or lobbying me this way and uh, for, for several years. I just wasn't ready before, but now I'm declaring myself as your pupil and I'm, <laughs> I'm ready. I, I'm ready and willing and actually I'm in need of your services. Well, I'm, I'm on the job and... Um, I'm just, I'm happy we were, we were able to arrange to have an acclaimed cognitive neuroscientist help you with your excessive responsibility disorder. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I couldn't think of a more worthy cause for him to apply his <laughs> exceptional talents toward. It's at, at, at the next Big Idea podcast, we, we aim to please. Um, <laughs> well, hey, thank you for, for volunteering your, um, the arc of your life as, as fodder and material for the show. Uh, I'm sure listeners will stay tuned. We'll have to come back with an update on progress. Well, I, I hope it was mildly entertaining for people. It was fun for me to think about. So um, thanks for asking me to do it. Would you like to hear what Christian thinks are the five biggest ideas from Be Who You Want? You just heard three of them. If you want to hear all five, download the Next Big Idea app and check out his book bite. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books every day of the week, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and other conversations with our Next Big Idea Club curators. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like what we're doing, please tell your uncles and aunts, friends and enemies, colleagues and rivals. If you have a chance, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Special thanks to Christian Jarrett. And, of course, to my old friend, Mark Harris, your fun therapy begins effective immediately. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Wondering.